Welcome to the Doctors in Politics podcast. Our second episode called People Want to Change in Healthcare Coast to Coast is a conversation with Dr. Robbie Goldstein, representing Massachusetts' 8th Congressional District, and Dr. Harold Tipernini, representing Arizona's 6th Congressional District. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Donna Kim Murphy. I am uh, one of the physicians with Doctors in Politics, and we are super privileged tonight to have uh, Robbie Goldstein with us and also um, Hiral. Hiral, please uh, pronounce your last name for me if you could. Uh, my name is Hiral Tipperneni. Hiral Tipperneni, thank you very much. And um, I wanted to just say a few words here about Doctors in Politics, and um, I'll give you a brief overview of what the next hour will be. Um, We're going to hear a bit about the candidates. Um, They're going to tell us who they are, why they're running, what their vision is for healthcare. Um, We're going to have a lightning round for about 10 minutes where they will give us very brief answers to a series of questions and then some long form questions as well. Um, And then we will finally take some questions from the audience and, and some closing statements from each of our candidates. Um, So about doctors in politics, uh, we are a political action committee uh, that supports and encourages more doctors to run for Congress, believing that in this moment, doctors are uniquely positioned to champion the best care for patients and be a driving force to heal America's healthcare system. We believe that we should move beyond conversations about health insurance to the broader view that all policy affects health. We'd support democratic and independent physician candidates who advance a vision of affordable, quality, patient-centered healthcare. We are profiling candidates to watch in 2020, and that includes Hural and Robbie. And looking ahead, we will uh, conduct a national candidate search to identify 50 doctor candidates to run for Congress in 2022. Understanding that running for Congress um, at this level or or running for public office at this level is very competitive. We will mobilize, amplify, and support these doctors to step into their urgently needed roles as public stewards. To tackle the most urgent issues impacting upon the health of our communities, we demand that our candidates support quality health care for everyone in the U.S., gun violence studied as a public health crisis, women's medical decisions free of politics, climate change viewed as a serious health concern, racism dismantled in our institutions, and education designed for whole child development. I just wanted to say a few words um, about why um, I'm here. Um, I'm a physician scientist. I've been involved in civic engagement work for many decades. Um, And what I've found very consistently over this time is that we've had a crisis of disengagement in in our country. And I think there are probably several reasons for this. I'm not a sociologist, so this is just me kind of, um, you know, it's conjecture, I guess, for me, um, educated conjecture. Um, But I think part of the reason why we are so disengaged is um, the professionalization of knowledge and the silos that's created for us. It drives who you know, um, who you hang out with. And I think in many ways, therefore, what you know about the world around you. Um, Technology also, I think it creates this illusion that we are ever more connected, but it's in its inability. And I think we've seen this very acutely now with the COVID crisis and now this is the only way we can connect. Mm -hmm. Um, It's unable to capture our full humanity. And I think in that way, it actually ends up isolating us from one another. Um, And then finally, in places like Texas, where I am, every effort is made to disempower and disenfranchise through cutting civics programming in public schools and creating every barrier imaginable to voting. 
So really very much related to this crisis, I think we also see a crisis um, of leadership, right? Because when our communities are disengaged, we're not engaging in uh, the electoral process and we end up having poor leadership. Um, and I think we're seeing that all over the country. Um, and I, I think also um, in that we see that the public has increasingly lost trust in physicians as leaders. So I think all of us at Doctors in Politics feel that it is very much within our grasp to, to change that. Um, but it will take some of us, at least, um, becoming more visible and uh, not just being the people who acutely manage the, the, their patients' health uh, issues, but understanding also that um, there were certain circumstances, right, that uh, influenced why and how their patients got there. Um, these are all the things that we call like the social determinants of health. And uh, physicians as um, public office holders have the opportunity to, um, to uh, influence the, the, the policies that um, really affect our patients' lives. So this is, this is why I'm here. I wanted you guys now to give us some idea of why you are here and why you're running for office. Um, so Robbie, let's start with you. Great. Well, um, first I'll say thank you for having me tonight and for giving me this opportunity to be on this panel. I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, for for people who don't know me and where I'm from, I'm Robbie Goldstein. I'm an infectious disease doctor at Mass General Hospital in Boston. I am running to be the next representative for Congress in the eighth district of Massachusetts. Uh, I oftentimes say at the beginning of these types of conversations that uh, I'm really in this race to fight for access, equity, and opportunity for every person to live a healthy life in every community. Um, you know, to give you a little bit of my background of how I got from medical school to running for Congress, I um, came to Massachusetts 20 years ago. I went to Tufts. I stayed to get an MD and a PhD. I went over to Mass General, did training in internal medicine and then infectious diseases. And throughout all of it, I actually knew the thing I wanted to do was what my parents did which was to take care of communities. My dad was a dentist and my mom managed the office and they showed me what it's like to care for folks. Um, so I decided to really become a primary care doc and I became a doc for folks living with HIV, folks in the LGBTQ community and people affected by substance use. And that was the work of the beginning part of my medical career uh, until about five years ago when I recognized as a primary care doc that it was trans and non-binary folks who were facing some of the hardest challenges of all of the people I was seeing coming into clinic. They were people who were facing violence and prejudice and social and economic marginalization at levels that others weren't seeing. And I recognized I had to do something about it. So I established the Transgender Health Program at MGH I'm now the medical director of the program. And in over five years, we created systems change in one of the largest healthcare institutions on the East Coast. That work opened my eyes to what it's like to create system change, to be a leader within the system, um, and also how to fight for what's right. And in that fight for what's right, to learn how to do it in a smart way, in a way that's data-driven, that's evidence-based, that utilized all of the skills I learned in medical school and residency and fellowship um, to allow me to apply all of that to doing both what's right and smart every day for my patients. Um, so I got into this race uh, back in November of 2019, taking on an incumbent who had, is a Democrat, but yet voted against the Affordable Care Act in 2010 voted against reproductive rights during his 20 years in, in Washington, and has really put healthcare on the back burner 
And I got in to say, healthcare is incredibly important. Certainly we have to expand access, but it's so much more important than an insurance card in everyone's pocket. It's about housing and food security and transportation and all of those other social determinants of health that you that you talked about. So that's that's who I am and why I'm here. And I'm so excited to have the rest of this conversation over the hour. Excellent. Thank you so much. Carol, how about you? Well, again, lovely to be here with you, Donna, and uh, you, Robbie, and uh, certainly all of the folks with Doctors in Politics. So excited to know that we have a larger presence and a stronger voice. Um, so, you know, I'm a, a few things that have really influenced me to run. I'm a first generation immigrant. My family came to the States when I was three years old from India. And, uh, you know, they came, as you would imagine, for this chance for their children to seek the American dream. And, and really at the core of that American dream was education. It was the chance to, to receive an education and let the sky be the limit, uh, knowing that if we worked hard and we were dedicated and we played by the rules that we could be um, anything, we could really, you know, serve our communities. And that was part of what I was taught growing up where the three main things were number one, you know, work really hard at your education. That is your key to opportunity. Um, number two was, you know, take good care and be there for your family and friends. And third was about giving back to the community. It was about giving back by sharing skills, by being empathic, by, you know, whatever small acts of kindness, big or small, uh, making sure that I was looking out for my community. Um, eventually, uh, so I grew up in Ohio on the West side of Cleveland in a small little working class suburb. And, uh, um, Eventually, I went to medical school uh, in Ohio, and then I did my residency in emergency medicine in Michigan. And, um, and you know, a part of the reason I chose emergency medicine is because of its problem-solving premise, right? It was basically about this sort of this puzzle walking in, and you were, you know, trying to put the pieces together and solve it and, uh, and figure out what was wrong with folks. And, um, you know, it was really um, a chance to use those skills of empathy you know, establishing very quick rapport within just a few minutes with patients that you had no other history with, being very good at listening and, and hearing the things that you really needed to learn to take good care of the patient, uh, being able to work on a team um, without any partisan bias, and really being able to work on a team without any ego, right? It was about everybody being able to be an equal part. And the goal was about this problem, this the situation in front of us, what was wrong with this patient and making their life better. Um, and when you think about that, that's really the skills I think that every legislator should have. They should be out there listening. They should be empathic. They should be able to work on a team, look at data objectively and solve the problem for the greater good. And you know what I learned as an emergency physician is a lot of what both of you have touched on is the fact that there are so many confounding factors, right, that lead to a person's presentation to the emergency department or to the point of care. Um, yes, there might be an isolated medical issue, but more often than not, there are other contributing factors. Um, and obviously in the emergency department, sometimes we see things that have nothing to do with their health, medical health per se, but have everything to do with their overall um, health, whether it's educational disparities, economic, uh, you know, um, a lack of an economic sa safety net, uh, addiction, mental health issues, exposure to domestic abuse or gun violence, uh, homelessness, abject poverty, all of those things, right? Um, and as you both mentioned, these are those 
social contributing factors that we have to take into account. And I think certainly my perspective as an ER physician gives me that, you, you know, that unique experience set that really allows me to see these things comprehensively. Too many folks, I think, in D.C. right now um, are seeing these issues in a silo. You know, they, they address education, they address uh, health care, they address immigration, but they're not seeing how these constellation of other factors feed in. And that's what we need. We need more of a global approach. Like you said, when we talk about health care, we're not just talking about insurance. We're talking about access, quality, affordability, um, health are related to education, related to economic abilities, related to housing. Um, all of these things feed in. And we really need more of that comprehensive approach. And I think that's what uh, medicine has given me. It's given me these problem-solving skills, the ability to listen and be empathic, uh, which is ingrained in us, and to really um, you know, understand the meaning of that oath, right? That oath we took of do no harm. Uh, that oath is is more powerful, um, you know, it's more meaningful today than ever when you look at what folks in elected office are doing. Uh, so I'm very excited about this race. We have an amazing opportunity to flip a very critical seat here in Arizona 6. My opponent is somebody who is in the Freedom Caucus. He's a Republican in the Freedom Caucus who has um, lost sight of, of Arizona families and is now really focused more on his corporate donors and his lobbyists. He's somebody who's voted to repeal the ACA umpteen times without any plan for replacement, voted against protections for pre-existing conditions, and has really just been harmful on every issue um, that is important, I think, to families all across this country. Uh, we are now a top red to blue campaign. We are one of the most competitive house races in the country, and Arizona is a battleground state, so we cannot wait to make a huge impact top to bottom uh, in Arizona in November. Uh, and I look forward to working alongside all of you to get that job done. Super. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm, I'm very excited to have you both here. Um, so we want to just uh, roll into our lightning round session. And um, so the rules of this session are that these the answer should be very brief. So think like 10 seconds, you know, or less if possible. Um, I will start motioning <laughs> if you're going too long um, to suggest to you to, to wrap it up. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can get through a, a number of questions. They're, they're kind of silly, some of them. Some of them are get to know you questions. Some of them are a little bit more serious, but to keep your answers brief. We will have long form questions following. Um, okay, so what restaurants in your congressional districts have you most frequented during your campaign? Um, Carol, why don't you go first? Sicilian Butcher. <laughs> that is a place that our whole team has eaten at a million times. And I would tell anybody and everybody to go there. It's like three minutes from my campaign office. In Phoenix? It is at the edge of, yeah. It's right okay. at the end of Phoenix, yeah. Awesome. Robbie, how about you? So before COVID, when we could go out to restaurants, yeah. um, my husband and I used to go to Tony and Elaine's, which is in the north end of Boston. And it's where we really looked through all of the data and made all of the plans to launch this campaign and where we celebrated the early milestones. Oh, very cool. That's also Italian, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What uh, did you want to be when you grew up? This is for Robbie first. I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. It was just the thing that was on my mind from when I was, gosh, in fifth, sixth grade, I knew that I was going to be a doctor. Nice. Hero, how about you? Um, I mean, I realized I wanted to be a doctor when I was about nine. I had typhoid fever. I was in the hospital for over two weeks. And it was there that I realized, wow, 
physicians really can can heal and bring incredible comfort. So prior to that, I don't think I had a real clear professional goal in mind. <laughs> okay. Um, here, I'll how, um, how about you next? What have you been most proud of in your life? Well, I have to say my three kids. I'm, I'm super, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of all three of them just as individual human beings. They are, they are three young adults uh, with good hearts, with amazing brains, and uh, just a real passion for, you know, what they can do with their life and their skills to make this world a, a better place. So I just great fan of, of all three of them. I know that's probably a cheesy answer, but that's, that's definitely what I'm most proud of. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> That's probably my answer too. It's, it's honest. Um, Robbie, how about you? Um, I should preface this by saying I don't have any children. Uh, so I'm not <laughs> leaving my children out. Not, <laughs> but um, I guess I'll say a, a professional accomplishment, which was the establishing of the, the transgender health program, which to me was um, years of hard work for the benefit of a community that really needed some help. Awesome. Um, Robbie, uh, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Never worry alone. Mm, that's great. Something I heard the first day of intern year, and then it has stuck with me every single day since. Huh. Carol. I like that. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it was, uh, if it doesn't scare you a little bit, it's probably not worth doing. Hmm. It was, oh, it I was, love that as well. Always a little bit of a push to push, you know, to push myself, challenge myself. Yeah, no, I think especially in this moment, it's like we talk a lot about how discomfort drive cha drives change. I think it's very, very true. Um, what is the most powerful way in which you see the world changing in the post-COVID era, Carol? I would like to think uh, that it will be a greater appreciation of science um, because it is science that will guide us out of this and it is the failure to respect science that I think has led to a, a lot of the extension of the complications and repercussions of this crisis. Mm -hmm. Robbie, what do you think? I love that answer. I think science for sure, the respect for science, but I'll also add, I actually think we're gonna come together um, in a way that we haven't been before. This isolation that we feel from being in our own space, we're actually more together than we've ever been. Um, FaceTiming and Zooming and calling people on the phone. And I, I want to hold on to that moment and feel like we've built a true community here that's going to stay together. Great. Robbie, if you could um, influence only one person in your life, who would that person be? That would be my husband. I have no control over what he says, does, or thinks. <laughs> <laughs> here, here all, what's your answer there? Oh, gosh. I'm not going to say my husband because I've I've been trying to influence him for 28 years, Robbie. <laughs> I gave up long ago. Um, I would probably say, gosh, I don't know. Right now, I would probably say our governor because uh, he is putting our state in, in peril. And that means, you know, thousands of lives that uh, we could potentially uh, lose and put at risk because of just incredibly poor leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, Hero, at what moment did you decide to run for Congress? The minute I knew I was running for Congress was in March of 2017, when um, my current, uh, or, or at that time, the current congressman um, voted for the full repeal of the ACA. And, uh, you know, it was when, remember when the House celebrated on the in the Rose Garden with President Trump? 
And it was that day that I said, you know what, I'm running for a congressional seat for that seat. I'm going to take, you know, what I know and my passion to the federal level to fight for healthcare. Wow. Robbie, how about you? I wish I could say there was one moment. I know the moment when I said the words out loud for the first time, um, but I had been thinking about it and it had been building for time. I, I really think this was sort of a series of moments over the past four years that drove me in this direction. Great. What is the easiest way we can support first-time physician candidates for any office? Robbie. Uh, well, I'm going to say the, the simple politician answer, which is you could donate to our campaigns to help us get some viability and move forward. But it's really all about support. It's just about getting out there and supporting us. Mm -hmm. And Hiral, how about you? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, obviously, financial resources are huge. There's no way to uh, uh, overstate that. But to also spreading the word social media is a great vehicle, uh, getting the word out, letting other folks know that, you know, if you want to support science and fact and medicine and have a greater voice at the table, who better than to put one of your healthcare colleagues out there? Excellent. Is, um, is candidate training a must do for first time candidates, Hiral? Um, you know, for me, it was really um, uh, important because I'm just this sort of person who likes to have a really good uh, lay of the land and know what I'm getting into. Um, for the most part, I know I can handle something out of nowhere, but this was a foreign world to me. So I did the eMERGE training and I thought that was very helpful. That's for Democratic women who want to run for office. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, as long as you know why you're running and you know what you don't know and you put people around you that do know, um, I don't think it's, it's mandatory. I think for me, it was just really helpful. Excellent. And Robbie, how about you? Um, I actually didn't do any candidate training prior to running. And so maybe we should ask the people on my campaign staff if I should have. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, I think, you know, I, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading on my own. I think as physicians, we're used to figuring some things out and doing the work to really understand how to, how to make this successful. So um, I dove into this like any other project or any other goal I had in medicine. Great. Um, what is the uh, what is one way in which race comes to bear on health, Robbie? Just one way. I think it's in every way. Um, you know, I, I think we can't talk about healthcare without talking about structural racism. Um, COVID has really shown that to us. But I was seeing that for the past decade in HIV care and trans health. Um, we, as physicians and as healthcare providers, have to say the words out loud that that medicine is racist mm -hmm. and we've got to fix that. But the first step is actually saying that it exists. Kirill? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we, you know, we point out a lot of the, the uh, disparities, but we have to identify that within ourselves as well. And we know that we possess all sorts of inherent biases. Uh, they're related to race, to gender. Um, and we as a profession have to fully address that uh, before we can, you know, completely uh, change the way that structural racism is impacting our patients. Mm -hmm. And the last la lightning round question is actually an educational question for our audience. Um, do, do either of you, you can just speak up if you happen to know this, know what the percentage is of physicians in Congress of all of the 435 seats? Like what percentage of those are? We do the math, 17 divided by four. I was say, yeah, it's a very small number. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, so like historically, I think in the first hundred years of Congress, um, like around five percent of Congress was um, 
physicians. So we're, we're a little bit lower than that now. So it'd be great to see you guys in office. Um, I want to move on to the long form questions to stay on track here. So for this um, part of the, the hour, um, I'm asking you guys to spend just one minute in providing your answer to each of each of the following questions. So um, first, I will start with Hiral. Uh, what is the one of the most challenging moments that you have encountered in your campaign? And how have you overcome it? Uh, well, I would say one of them is really related to this current pandemic. Uh, you know, having to campaign remotely um, is obviously not ideal. Uh, we, you know, I get uh, such an energy from being around people, around our community, around families and folks and hearing their stories face to face. And to not be able to do that, it, it's challenging. But, uh, you know, obviously we shut down our campaign office as soon as, you know, uh, we realized that it was necessary. We've been working remotely and trying to adapt otherwise, but, you know, that is something I miss. It is something that really feeds my fire and um, it just, you know, it's, it's something that's a little challenging, but uh, nothing we can't overcome. Great. Robbie, how about you? What's been the most um, challenging aspect um, of your you know, the, the transition to the virtual campaign was really, really hard, but I actually think I had a, an even more challenging moment before that, which was the first time I was in the exam room with a patient, a primary care patient, and the patient said, what happens when you win? Uh, and I had to recognize the, the impact this would have on my patients and my patient panel, mm -hmm. stepping away as someone's primary care doctor. Um, that was a really challenging moment for me. I had thought about it for uh, probably two years before anything had really happened with the campaign, could I actually make that decision to step away from seeing patients and to be confronted with the question and then sit there and say, I will make sure that you have a doctor to take care of you. I will make sure you have the care you need, but knowing that it couldn't be me. Uh, it was just a really challenging and difficult moment in the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, Robbie, what would you change about your state's response to COVID-19? In Massachusetts um, had was part of the early wave of infections, um, and it had a pretty great response, I would have to say, all things considered, in those early days. We ramped up testing in ways that I, I've never really seen um, that type of response in any other type of diagnostic testing. We um, really prepared our hospitals, and not a single hospital felt that it was too overwhelmed. We were able to expand our ICU capacity um, in ways that nobody really anticipated we could do that. Where I've been, I think, the most disappointed is in our reopening process and the reopening board of, that our governor pulled together. It was a board that was supposed to talk about data and science and evidence. It was a board that had mostly CEOs and executives mm -hmm. from across the state and not public health experts and epidemiologists and, and infectious disease docs. There were actually only two docs on the whole panel. Um, and, and for me, I really wanted to see us lead with evidence, lead with data. I think that we are doing what is right. Those, those infectious disease acts on the panel spoke up loudly and clearly, but it would have been great to have more physician voices in that process. Wow, sounds like Texas, <laughs> that board of advisors. Um, Hiral, how about you? Well, Arizona is, is, it has both of you beat. Um, <laughs> so in a very negative way, unfortunately. Um, I would say, obviously I would change a lot of things with how our state has responded. Um, but the core of it is that uh, our governor has really sort of turned a blind eye to the data. Um, and our public health uh, department has been used more as a political pawn rather than a true source of guidance. 
Um, you know, from the time uh, we were one of the last states to shut down, we were one of the first states to reopen. Our governor said that it would be data driven, these decisions, and that was completely not the case. Um, I have been sounding the alarm along with, you know, hundreds of other healthcare, healthcare professionals around the, uh, the state to, uh, first of all, boost um, testing to make sure that we actually implemented some sort of infrastructure for contact tracing to stay closed down longer and make sure that we are letting data drive our decisions to reopen. And most recently to uh, mandate masks, because now that we are reopened, we have, you know, nightclubs and bars that are packed chock full of people, which, you know, doesn't take a, a genius or, or a physician to understand that that is dangerous. So just yesterday, our governor finally didn't mandate the mask himself for the state, but said that um, cities and, and city councils independ independently could mandate mandate that. And so uh, the problem is it's not a statewide mandate, but you know the fact that that requires hundreds and hundreds of healthcare professionals to raise their voices on something as basic as that, uh, it just tells you about the paucity of influence or consulting with medical professionals. And you know, again, what Robbie said, letting data and science guide us, this is a public health crisis. We should let public health officials and medical leaders guide us. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Um, here all, uh, increasingly private equity firms are becoming involved with healthcare with the potential for conflict between patients and profits. In light of these changes, what policies can be implemented to ensure that patients continue to get quality, equitable, and affordable care? Well, you know, one of the things is, again, about making sure that physicians have uh, a voice that is clear and leading that decision making uh, when it's about patient care, when it's about, you know, what is indicated. Um, nobody else should be making those decisions. That should be based in science. And we have to make sure that, you know, patients feel that they are fully uh, being treated in the, uh, you know, with the right um um, motivations, right? Uh, that it's not because of either money or policy, but it's because it's the right standard of care that we are following. So I think it's important that we have policies that protect that there are no conflicts of interest, that we have physicians that are truly working to be the advocate for patients and are not otherwise swayed or biased by either holdings within those private equity firms or any sort of other uh, conflict of interest, whether it's perceived or real, because we don't, the, you know, at the core of the physician-patient relationship is trust. And if we don't maintain that, then, you know, everything else is, is meaningless. Robbie, what do you think about private equity and healthcare? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to how we pay for care and the structure of our payments. Um, and we've got to do a lot of work to change that and to move us towards a value-based model that I think is going to just change the, the fundamental profitability of healthcare. Um, and it's gonna move us more towards healthcare being a right and not a commodity, right? That's the transition we need to make. I think though, there is a tremendous role of the Food and Drug Administration in actually driving some of the capitalism that exists within the healthcare market. And I have been talking about for a long time, but well before I was running for Congress, the, uh, the lack of equity in the FDA's decisions, the lack of um, you know really doing things for the benefit of health, as opposed to for the benefit of a company's bottom line. Uh, and I think when we can make some substantial changes to the FDA and the regulations that govern drug development, device development in this country, we will actually begin to see us move in that space of healthcare as a right, instead of healthcare as something that we can trade publicly on the floor of the, of the, um, the Dow Jones, right? The floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, I have to just say something 
gratuitous at this point. <laughs> I'm like enjoying so much listening to like educated and like super articulate people because when I listen to politicians, typically I, I don't actually want to listen to them <laughs> because I don't hear that. Um, and, and you have very relevant things to say about healthcare and anything that comes to bear on health, which is just, it's fabulous. I, I'm really enjoying this. Um, so th my next question, Robbie, this is for you. How can we leverage science and technology policy to better serve our patients while still balancing affordability and safeguarding equity. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of this is leading with the data and leading with the science and also recognizing that um, I have this phrase that I keep saying on the campaign, which is the right thing to do is the smart thing to do. A lot of these things about equity, uh, right, about racial justice, about what is morally right to do, when we implement those changes, they actually will begin to make healthcare more affordable. That's the argument that I made to hospital leadership when I was trying to build a program for transgender health right, in an enormous institution was you're doing this because it's right. This is right on equity. This is right um, you know, for us to be doing as a, as a healthcare institution. But let me also show you why this is smart and why we're going to provide better care. These people are going to utilize our emergency room less. They're going to um, right, have better mental health outcomes. All of the things that we want to talk about um, as a successful healthcare institution. So we've got to start linking those two things for, for folks and helping people understand that when they do the right thing, it will be good for their bottom line. Excellent. Harold, how about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, and I think we've sort of learned a little bit more about how technology really has impacted healthcare in this current pandemic, right? Especially with telemedicine and our, you know, ability to, you know, have more remote access to healthcare. Um, I think, again, it is, it is that sort of inherent oath that we all took, right? It is about doing no harm and doing good and putting those people first before politics or anything else. And that is not a high bar, but yet we have elected officials that are really focused on, I think, you know, things related to either profitability or to, you know, more uh, leveraging of power. Um, I think that is in extremely, uh, that is the, the core reason of why we need more physicians at the table, because we have to bring it back to that, the benefit that it has. I mean, healthcare has been turned into this conversation about, you know, profit margins, insurance companies, pharmaceutical profits, um, you know, regulations and, and so forth. And it's lost its focus on, you know, the patient and, and good healthcare delivery and improving lives. And I think uh, what we need to do is make sure that we don't um, lose that focus. And the way to do that is to really make sure that more physicians are guiding that decision-making and having that voice at the table. We've seen how uh, we're able to leverage more technology in this current crisis. As long as it is guided by our medical decision-making, I think we can continue to implement that even post-COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to mention that today uh, I was showing Robbie earlier before we started, but I'll show you my, my t-shirt. I was going to wear like a, a more formal like blouse. Oh, I love it. I was like, no, I must wear the shirt. It's like an activist love shirt it. for documented immigrants. Um, so today SCOTUS ruled in favor of um, DACA, um, of keeping DACA. So um, I wanted to know if you guys could share with us a little bit about what the situation is for undocumented immigrants in your states and um, what you plan to do to ensure that they have more secure futures here. Yeah. Well, obviously in Arizona, we have, um, I think we are about the sixth highest uh, number of uh, DACA recipients in our state. And um, we have about 24,000 DACA 
kids or DACA recipients, I should say, they're not kids anymore, but, and then 14,000 of them that have work permits. Um, so, you know, this is a, an issue that I think a lot of folks think America is really divided on. I think for the most part, people are very united on this issue. They understand that these kids are part of our community, right? They are students, they are working, they are they're in our military. I mean, these folks are, are everywhere and they are giving back to our community and they're living, you know, lives that we should be honored and grateful to, to have in our, in our communities. Um, it was a huge victory today, but we know it was also somewhat of a, uh, you know, a tease out of a rule and we have to make sure that they don't go back and, and try to re, uh, institute, you know, blocking uh, the the DACA recipients from, you know, continuing to be safe from deportation, and making sure that we eventually give them a pathway to citizenship. So I think what we need to do now is make sure we pass a Clean Dream Act, and give them that pathway to citizenship. Let them live their lives in the light. Uh, I could not be prouder to know several DACA recipients. Um, we know that contributions that they've made are uh, invaluable, and honestly. It is the beauty of the fabric of this country, uh, folks like just like them. And as somebody who's a first-generation immigrant, I came here when I was three, if somebody had told me when I was in high school or college or medical school that I had to go back to India, uh, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine the fear that our DACA kids have been living under during these three years of the, the Trump, um, you know, policy. Mm -hmm. Robbie, how about you? Situation. You know, I, I, I want to echo everything that Hirol just said. I mean, I think it is, it's incredible the amount that DACA recipients have given to this country uh, and it's our turn to, to really show them our respect and, um, and bring them into this country in the legal process. But I, I also want to recognize that I'm really lucky to live in a state like Massachusetts where we have really wonderful legislation that protects undocumented folks in, in our state. Um, anyone in this state can get health insurance. Anyone in the state can walk into a doctor's office and get the care that they need. That doesn't mean that it's easy for them. And I think that we have a lot of work to do, mm -hmm. specifically in making sure that people feel welcomed. So um, I'll just briefly say, you know, I, I see a lot of folks who are undocumented who come into my various clinics. Um, one of which I saw a few months ago who came after um, coming across the border um, into Texas being detained and being in many ways um, tortured in that, in that space and really an emotionally tortured um, experience. She made her way up to Massachusetts and up to Boston and she waited six months before coming into clinic because she was so fearful of government and so fearful of institutions, right? And when she came in, I was able to do the job of a doctor of getting her health insurance and treating anything she needed and giving her medicines, but the actual work was breaking down all of the barriers that had been put in place by our country, by our government, by the decisions of the Trump administration. And so I think even in places like Massachusetts, where things are actually in a good place um, for those that are undocumented and are working towards citizenship here, we still have so much work to do. Yes, I, I definitely agree. Um... I, I could probably talk forever on this topic because it's a topic that where I'm very, very active, but um, we are running out of time. So <laughs> I'm going to move on to other questions. Um, Robbie, describe your constituents. What are the top three issues that drive, in your, in your judgment, that drive their voting decisions and how can you address them? 
So I'm not saying this just because I'm a doctor and we're doctors on polit- in politics, um, but <laughs> healthcare is the number one issue that I hear about and the number one issue of, of the folks across the district. Um, before COVID, traffic and infrastructure, transportation was actually the number two issue that I heard about. That has receded a little bit, mostly because nobody's in their car and no one's driving into work. So I think they have a little bit of amnesia around how bad the traffic is and the infrastructure. And then the third thing that people talk to me about is, is climate change. Um, and the climate crisis. Much of the district actually is along the shore in Massachusetts, along the South shore of of Massachusetts. And they are feeling the real and devastating impact of climate change every day as the tides are coming in and houses are flooding. Um, I have to say over the past two weeks though, kind of replacing that, that infrastructure traffic has been racial justice and racial equity and our fight for a better criminal legal system and to bring justice into that system. These are all issues that are are the same issues I was talking about in November. They're issues that I think are the bread and butter of medicine. It's what doctors talk about, right? We talk about how do you get healthcare? How do you live a healthy life in the home that you're in? um, And how do we make sure that there's equity in everything that we are doing? And so they feel really comfortable for me to talk about. And I think people in some ways trust me as a physician to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Hirol, what are the top three issues for your voters? Well, not to, you know, belabor a point, but healthcare. <laughs> um, and, and, and quite honestly, I don't think it's just my district. I think it's pretty much across the country that for most families, um, healthcare still remains the number one issue and concern, um, you know, especially given the fact that uh, this current administration has tried to continue to erode the ACA. Um, and, you know, just, uh, was it just earlier, not this week, I am losing track of time this week or last week when they just rolled back protections for, uh, transgender folks, um, and LGBTQ communities in with healthcare. Um, that is a constant assault. We know that there's still the case up with the attorneys general that are trying to, you know, repeal what is left of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, Folks are worried. They're concerned. They're afraid that they're not going to have their pre-existing conditions covered. They're not going to be able to afford their medication. Um, seniors are worried about Medicare. You know uh, that it's solvent and that they are able to rely on it consistently throughout the years. Uh, so these are real existential concerns all of our communities. Um, and obviously, a lot of that has been magnified by COVID. Um, second is uh, economic uh, growth and opportunity. Um, you know, Phoenix and, and, and Arizona itself, Phoenix mostly has grown uh, exponentially since I've been here for 24 years. I've seen it grow um, rapidly, but we have not had the kind of economic uh, growth and infrastructure adaptation that we need for the population growth. Um, so a lot of that connects to something similar to what Robbie mentioned is really investment in infrastructure projects that not only help quality of life, but also add to our economic revenue. And that also connects directly to climate crisis because one of the areas we're not fully tapping into is renewable energy and that economy. And we have the potential to, obviously we're Arizona, we should be leading in solar and uh, and wind power and we're not. Uh, and that is an investment that we need to make to not only help the environment address the climate crisis, but also will fuel our economy. Um, and then the last thing is that really folks are are just really fed up with the the corruption and the self-serving nature of too many folks in DC. They are just tired of the idea of, you know, what politics has become. 
divisive and self-serving. Uh, my opponent is sort of a perfect example of all that is wrong in Washington. And I think that's another reason why I think we've, we've been successful as far as we have, because people want to know that you're going into it for the right reasons, that you're going to look out for their families and that you are somebody that they can trust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same thing that took us to medicine, I think is taking us to public service. So those are the top three things that are really, uh, you know, the con- in the conversation here. How can the Democratic Party build bridges between progressives and moderate Democrats? Carol. Well, you know, I, I think our district is sort of a great example of that. And, and honestly, I think as physicians, we are we're very pragmatic. Right. So, like, we know our values. I know why I'm a Democrat. I know my values. They're in my core. Uh, I'm also pragmatic about how I accomplish uh, the goal to get to those things like quality, affordable health care for every American, making sure that we, you know, ensure quality education for every young person, making sure that we are keeping our communities safe from gun violence. All of these things, there are very pragmatic, thoughtful ways of getting there. And again, for me and for I think a lot of us, it's based on data. And what we know is that we can bring those those sides of the spectrum together by finding that common ground, basing decisions on data and showing the fact that let's start where we know we can make the most progress and then let's build from there. And quite honestly, um, I am, I am, you know, I'm as much of a dreamer as anybody else, but I also want to know that what I do is going to make the greatest impact as a physician. You know, yes, we have sort of our, our hopes and dreams for our patients, but we also institute things immediately that we know are going to stabilize the situation and get it on the right track. And then we can look at long-term permanent uh, solutions for an overall good prognosis. That's how we should be addressing this. And I think if we have a conversation, whether it's moderates or progressives, we have to remember why we're Democrats. We have to remember those core values. And then we have to let data and, and science and common sense and an evidence-based approach to decision-making lead us. And I think that is something that everybody can buy into. Mm-hmm. Um, Robbie, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I share a lot of those thoughts. I, I I would say, you know, there are some core values of Democrats that we want to see in all Democrats, moderate or progressive. Things like uh, the protection of reproductive rights, the expansion of health care to really ensure health care for all Americans, right? Those are things I'll say that the Democrat I'm running against actually doesn't believe in. And so I think that there are times when we shouldn't compromise with the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Um, but ultimately, I, I think physicians have this ability that we've actually learned in the first year of medical school, which is, I always go back to this, this SOAP note, right? This idea of taking the subjective information about an individual who walks into the exam room, you know, marrying that with the objective data that we can pull together to come up with an overall assessment of the problem and then lay out a very clear plan. Right. We have been hammered over the head that that is the way that we think through every single problem. If Washington started using SOAP notes and they started thinking about things in that, that algorithm, I actually think that we'd be able to bring people together because we would show them, well, yes, we totally hear your values and the subjective piece, but here's all of the objective data. And this is how we can pull it all together into a very coherent assessment of the problem that's facing America. And then here are all the plants. And let's figure out which is the the one we're going to start with, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, just like we do when we admit a patient to the hospital. So I think we as physicians are uniquely prepared, actually, to bring the two wings of the Democratic Party together. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I love soap notes, Robbie. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. I'm an internal I mean, medicine doctor. No, but that <laughs> approach works for everything. It really does. It works for children too. Uh, <laughs> I just heads up when you have children. <laughs> Um, okay, so the last question that I have in, in uh, this segment is, um, I'll start with you, Robbie. It's, uh, what is one policy position you hold that you will not compromise? So I, I will not compromise on healthcare for all Americans in this country. I just, I think that we live in a country that guarantees healthcare as a fundamental human right. And until we live up to that value, we will not be truly the, the nation that we can be. Um, I think we've got to have a conversation about how we pay for it. We've got to have a conversation about how we get there. There's a lot of discussion that's going to happen, but we should never compromise in our march towards universal health care for every single American and the ability for everybody to live a healthy life in every community. And that goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about way at the beginning, right? That it's not just about access to insurance. That's part of healthcare, but it's access to a healthy life and a healthy community too. Carol, what do you think? Well, can I just say ditto and add something to that? Because absolutely, (laughs) 110%, what he said, uh, health is at the core of everything, right? Whether it's work or any quality of life, if you don't have healthcare and good health, you have nothing. But I'm going to add to that about specifically women's reproductive health rights, because uh, to me, that is something that uh, it will, again, not not able to compromise on that, shouldn't have to compromise on that. And that's not just a healthcare issue. That's an economic issue. That's a civil rights issue. It's an issue that we know disproportionately impacts communities of color. And uh, to me, that is something that is non-negotiable, period. Great. Um, now we're going to move to a few questions from our audience. Um, uh, it's on healthcare, so that's that's appropriate. Um, Hero, uh, the first question is: Are you pri- are you for pricing transparency in healthcare? Yes, I am. <laughs> um, look, I think uh, it's it's our job to um, you know deliver the best quality care for every patient, right? And none of nothing. Uh, else should really factor into that. Uh, that being said, um, we do have to contain healthcare costs. We know that there's waste in the system. We know that there are areas that we can directly address. The only way to know that is to have full transparency and to have those honest conversations, um, whether it's regarding you know insurance coverage and deductibles, um, costs of pharmaceuticals, you know, costs of whether it's radiological uh, studies or lab uh, studies or other therapeutic interventions. Um, I Yes, I believe that we need transparency. We can substantiate and, and support why things are costing the what they're costing by explaining that. And that means transparency and accountability. It's like what we ask for, for our, from our pharmaceutical, uh, you know, brethren. We want to know how much is being spent on R&D, how much is being spent on production versus how much is being spent on marketing. I think uh, that kind of accountability is important in all aspects of healthcare. Robbie, what do you think about pricing transparency? Um, I'll say ditto to this one <laughs> and say <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, yes, I am for price transparency and for knowing what the actual price is. I, I think, unfortunately, sometimes we get prices that aren't actually the price that people are paying or that the system is paying when we talk about price transparency. And, and we can't actually decide if something is 
worth that cost, right? If it's cost effective overall for us to be doing this in the system and, and we can't negotiate the price lower, we can't control the cost until we know what we're actually paying every single day for the healthcare in this country. Um, you know, I'll say in Massachusetts, we have laws on the books to make sure that there's price transparency and the numbers we're getting are not the real numbers of what the cost of care is. And that's a problem. Um, so Robbie, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this question. I've, I've been struggling with it. I'm not sure that I totally understand it. <laughs> maybe, maybe you understand it, um, or you can interpret it and give your answer to your interpretation. Should there be laws in place to protect physicians if the hospital isn't adequately equipped? So I, I'll maybe put this in the context of COVID-19 and right. sort of the, 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 the situation that we went through here in Massachusetts as we prepared for more and more cases to come into the hospital and thinking about if you're a physician and you're going to go work at a field hospital, what is the responsibility of the field hospital? What is your responsibility? What if something happens? Um, how do we make sure that, that people aren't held liable? Uh, and, and we in Massachusetts very quickly actually got rid of a lot of the liability laws and made sure that mm -hmm. if I, as me as a physician walked into um, the Boston Hope Field Hospital, which we set up to house a thousand patients with COVID, uh, that I could go in there and take care of patients and not worry about my liability. And, and I think that that's the right thing to do. We were in a, a crisis. We were in a time of crisis. We needed every healthcare provider all across the system to come out and do what they could and to not be fearful that they may be sued at the end because they didn't read the, the most recent update on hydroxychloroquine and um, you know prescribed a medication that the day before maybe was the right medication the next day wasn't. I, I, so I do think that we've got to readdress those, the liability laws, certainly in times of crisis. Um, Hero, I'm going to actually, I think that potentially this question might have been asking, um, how do you protect physicians by creating laws uh, to, maybe to hold the hospital systems accountable? Um, to ensure that they do the right thing <laughs> to protect their physicians and their patients. Um, if you read it in that way, what would you say, Carol? Um, so I assume you're saying about, you mean actually protecting the physicians like physically, making sure that they are not putting themselves otherwise at risk? Right. Yeah, so obviously, again, in this current crisis, I think that issue has been brought into very sharp focus. I um, have spoken to, you know, countless colleagues in the front line who have uh, been exposed, uh, several that have, have been sick with COVID-19. Uh, I actually know one uh, colleague, um, in, not in this state, but who passed away. And uh, what I can say is that, yes, I think it's the responsibility of the hospital to ensure that physicians, nurses, janitorial staff, lab personnel, respiratory therapists, everyone is protected. Um, I mean, honestly, uh, the idea of you know people reusing masks and not having gowns, not having face shields, um, it is it is imperative that uh, we take care of our healthcare workers. Otherwise, they can't take care of everybody else. And uh, the hospital uh, should certainly be a strong partner in that, looking out for the safety of all of their employees. Um, you know, it is it behooves them to do it, not just because it's the right thing to do, but financially. Otherwise, you're looking at folks who are going to be out sick. You're going to look at potential, you know, liabilities. You're looking at a loss of productivity, um, all sorts of issues. So, uh, yes, I think as in any other workplace where we ask for uh, employees to have protections, uh, there's no reason it shouldn't be the same 
for physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals. Excellent. So I want to wrap up here um, with a few asks of our audience. Um, the first is, uh, these are really exciting. <laughs> these, these conversations that we get to have with congressional candidates who are physicians, people from our community, our professional community. Um, and I really encourage those of you who have joined us tonight to spread the word, to like and follow the Doctors in Politics Facebook page. We have also a group, a public group um, that you can join. And you don't have to be a physician at all. To, to be a part of those conversations that have to happen digitally. And I would love for people to donate to our candidates here, Robbie Goldstein, Massachusetts, and your congressional district is? The 8th Congressional District. The 8th Congressional District. And you have a runoff on? We have a primary on September 1st, yep. Oh, okay, a primary on September 1st. Carol, you are in Arizona Congressional District. 6, Arizona 6, and we have a primary on August 4th. Excellent. So for those of you who are joining who happen to be in their congressional districts, then please do vote in the primary in the general election. Hopefully we see both of our candidates in the general election. Um, do you all have anything else that you'd like to add before we sign off for the night? I, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. It's been lovely to meet Robbie and uh, wish you all the best in your race, Robbie. Um, and thank you, Donna, for this opportunity. This conversation has been great. Uh, and thank you to everyone with Doctors in Politics. Uh, we, we could not um, imagine a, a more critical time for our voices to be loud and clear in the halls of Congress. Uh, we must lead with science, with fact, with data, and with empathy. And I think that's where physicians are uniquely skilled to bring all of that together. So thank you for any support you can offer us. And uh, we're so proud to have, uh, have your support and your partnership. Thank you. Excellent. Robbie. Maybe I'll, I'll add my thanks as well, Donna and Hero. It's great to meet you, both of you, um, and to have this opportunity to speak with everyone in the Doctors in Politics family. Let's call it that, because I feel like we're growing and we're getting closer. Um, you know, I'll, I'll add that I think there is a moment right now in this country when physicians are really poised to get to Washington, get things done, lead with that data, evidence, with the science, and make sure that we're making the right decisions. And those decisions, I think, are right because folks like Carol and I are taking on people who have voted against healthcare, have voted against reproductive rights, have voted against the things that are so core to who we are as physicians and as Democrats, but also because we know what our patients are telling us every single day. And we are the people who can take those stories, that subjective part of the soap note, and bring it to Washington and create the change that we really need for, for everyone in all the communities across the country. So. Thank you everyone for, for joining tonight and for letting me have the opportunity to share a little bit about my campaign. The last thing that I did want to say is that if people um, start following us and review even some of the conversations we've had with congressional candidates who are physicians um, from prior, um, you'll see that we have a diversity of people rep rep represented. And I think that that uh, inclusion of people from like a mul multiplicity of backgrounds, um, of identities, of, ex of life experiences is really crucial. Um, we have um, a, a, an overwhelming majority of uh, physicians who identify as Republicans in Congress of, of the small number of physicians that we do have. And I think that um, it's important to have, I mean, even in our conversation tonight between the two of you, there, there are important differences. And I think they're, you're, you're both great. Um, and I would 
you know, I think a lot of us would love to see both of your voices in Congress, um, but it's it's what we're able to do collectively as a community of physicians who have kind of the same vision for where we should be headed as a country. And I think that you guys will be great additions to Congress. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you soon. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye-bye. Take care.